0: Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to today's show. The title of today's podcast is The One Decision That Makes a Millionaire boy very provocative huh very dramatic sounding is it true well it certainly is in my case and i have helped a lot of people with this years ago uh we had the irish television network rte fly out and spend a few weeks with us and they'd kind of a documentary on myself and the business of buffini and company and they kind of nicknamed me the millionaire maker and what that was about was because we've helped an awful lot of people who, when they came to us, weren't doing so good. And after a a number of years with us and putting them on the right path, all these people had reversed their fortunes. And we've done this with thousands and thousands of people who have increased their net worth and become millionaires. And so this is not just something I've studied. This is not just something I've read about, which I have. This is something I've lived in my own life. I've been a millionaire since I was uh, 26 years of age. And I don't really ever talk about that. I don't know if I've ever even said that before. But a lot of you on the podcast will be new to me and what I do. And so I want to share with you, there's uh, some great principles here that I want to help you. And if that's something you like, I would uh, like that to happen for you. Today's podcast is dedicated to my friend and mentor, Mr. Gene Coleman. Gene passed away here recently and a big void for me. Gene was like a second father to me over here in America. We met almost 30 years ago. Gene was a mentor. He was my business partner. And uh, we did a lot of stuff together. He was the one who introduced me to the concept of what I call mailbox money, where you grow your net worth and your investments to such a degree that to make your income, all you got to do is walk down to your mailbox. And I'm going to show you some things today that uh, can help you do that. Gene and I did a lot of Investments together. We did a lot of real estate together. The investment real estate is what Gene and I did first, and then I got into the real estate business as an agent, but it was predominantly because of my interest in investing in real estate as a principal myself. And so that's how I started my career, and then it became something more than that. And then that turned into something more than that again with uh, a coaching company. So today's message is to the great Gene Coleman. I miss him greatly, but I'm going to share some of the things he taught me uh, to you today, and some of the things that I've applied, certainly, in my own life. Before I get kind of into investing and the whole process here, we have to understand that the culture's view towards money, the typical person's view towards money, what's promoted on TV, what's marketed, is not a formula for success financially. The culture's view is... Success, economic success is the ability to buy more stuff and then typically people then have to go work much harder to go and afford the things that they bought. And typically people are paying for that which they uh, can't afford just yet, so they're paying with future earnings, they're paying with future interest expenses and they're on the wrong side of it. You know, the great Albert Einstein said, imagine this, he said, the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. And he said that those who understand it receive it and those who don't pay it. So when you're on the wrong side of the eighth wonder of the world, mathematically, there's a problem. It's a wonder. And people are always wondering how to get out of debt. Well, the first thing before we get into investing and how to go build a fortune is that you have to first go to work, you build your business, you do the things you need to do. You have to have a working budget. You have to spend less money than you make. You have to control what goes out. It's the one thing you're in total control of. You have to control what goes out, and then if you will do that, then you can earn more than you are currently spending. Then you can create what's called a surplus. And most people, uh, you know, today in the labels and how judgmental the cultures become, and and I mean that from a standpoint of the vitriol online and social media. Like something like a millionaire, that phrase itself can mean bad things to people. Uh, We have classifications for people. You're a one percenter. You know, I may do a podcast on that one day, but I think people would be shocked to find out what a one percenter is and how most people who even would resent the term one percenter would actually, when it's analyzed, they might actually find that they'd actually like to be that person. So we have all this nonsense, to be honest with you, around money. So let me just talk to you today about something that might interest you. Maybe you don't like the idea of being rich. Maybe you don't like the sound of the word millionaire. But maybe you like the idea of having a fortune. And that's what I'd like to help you do. And I built my fortune. And my fortunes allowed me to do a lot of great things for a lot of great people, including myself and my own family. So we work hard, we work in our business, we make it grow, we control the expenditures, we create a surplus, and then the surplus we ultimately use to turn into the fortune. That's kind of what I'm talking about today. And I know full well that the majority of people listening to this today may have some financial difficulties or challenges, but I want to paint a picture of where you can get there. If the son of a house painter from the south side of Dublin can build himself a fortune 30 years ago and build it up and create it that it becomes generational without being the smartest guy in his school without all the different advantages i came to america i got run over by a car again in and out of hospital and lots of bills and had a ton of a tough start and i built a fortune well by golly anyone listening to this can so let's take a look at the state of the union now we have 135 countries that have downloaded this podcast we have almost three quarters of a million people have downloaded this podcast so far it's fantastic appreciate your support and spreading the message so i know there's a lot of people in a lot of places but i am here in the states and so i always like to use the examples and and sometimes the challenges of what goes on here in the states so the stats i'll give you right now will come from that so the average retirement age in the united states right now is 63 so the game's changed it used to be 50 then it went to 55 Now, the average person is retiring in America at 63. Now, how are they doing? Well, the median saved amount for retirement in America today is $17,000. So these are working age people all the way up to the time of retirement. The average amount saved is 17 grand. So it means most people are not in a position to retire, obviously with $17,000. One in three people has saved $0,000 for retirement, according to Money Magazine. Now, I want you to think about this. The United States is the richest country in the history of humankind. The per capita income, the per capita net worth of Americans is the wealthiest country in the history of mankind on this scale. The poor in America are in the top 20% of earners worldwide. So a poor person in America is considered a rich person by world standards. And the richest country in the world, one in three people, have no dollars available for retirement. There's something wrong there. I like to say we're spending money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't know. The average savings is $4,400. 73% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. And the average household debt in the United States for a household now, which would be multiple people, is $132,000. So, 63 is the average age of retirement, 17 grand the uh, working age, average amount of money in retirement, 4,400 bucks in savings, and 132 grand in debt. Something wrong with this picture. So, here's what's going to happen I'm going to share with you a few things how to stop the insanity, get on the right side of this, and uh, if you'd like to build a fortune, I'd like to help you. So, I'm going to start off by giving you some tips. And then I'm going to get into the the nitty-gritty of this, but I'm ultimately going to lead you to the one decision that you make when it's time to invest, that if you will decide this properly, will make you a millionaire. So stay tuned. So here's a few tips for you to get going. First of all, invest in what you know. Invest in what you know. That is a principle that I've read in multiple books that Warren Buffett has written about investing. And he always talks about invest in what you know. That's why there are very good investments, very sound investments that Warren Buffett does not participate in because he doesn't really understand them or really know them that well. It doesn't mean he doesn't think it's a good investment. It's just not a good investment for him. So invest in what you know. Very important. He has a great quote. I love this. He says, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. I love that. Warren Buffett, smart guy. The second tip would be to think long-term. Think long-term. We are not long-term culture anymore. We are, even financially, it used to be companies would analyze by the quarter, then it became the mid-quarter, and now it's by the day. The dynamic is, if you plant three seeds in the ground and you pull them up two or three days later to see if they've grown, good luck with that. We have to think long-term. It's investing. It's not gambling. It's not going to the track it's not going to the casino. And that's why some of the problems with we have with the instant feedback we have today and the electronic means we have for understanding the data and what's happening and what's going on in the market, and most people are not thinking long-term. The great economist, Paul Samuelson, he was a Nobel Prize winner. He said, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take 800 bucks and go to Vegas. Okay, I don't know. He's just a Nobel Prize winning economist. But it's not sexy to say, watch the paint dry, watch the grass grow. That's not sexy. That's not hip. That's not in. There's no app for that. And so invest in what you know, think long term. Third, you got to stay the course. You got to stay the course. You got to be consistent is what that means. If compound interest the eighth wonder of the world, the one thing you got to have for compounding to take place is consistency. On the real estate front, uh, we have a little phrase we like to say, landlords grow rich in their sleep. That's because they stayed the course. They stayed the course. Fourth, you got to reevaluate annually. So you reevaluate what you're doing and your performance, okay? Peter Lynch, who was really the leader of Fidelity Fund Management, said uh, know what you own and know why you own it. You know, you're reevaluating annually and you're saying, "Okay, here's how it did and here's how it didn't do. Here's what I was hoping for." And here's what we got and what went on in the world and what went on in the market. And the tip on that then would be to re-examine the strategy you have every three years. What's your strategy? And so, again, great entrepreneur, Bob Parsons, he was the founder of GoDaddy, PXG Golf. He goes, never stop investing, never stop improving, never stop doing something new. And so that's how you stay fresh and new. So just a few problems of where we're at, a few tips on how to handle it. And now let me get into the nitty-gritty. I had a big, bold statement, and today we said there's one decision that can make you a millionaire, and here's what it is. When it comes time to invest, I'm presuming you folks listening to this, you're willing to work, and you're willing to work hard, and you're willing to grow yourself. And if you'll do those three things, you will increase your income. There's no question about it. Now, if you're willing to hold down your expenses and what you spend money on, you'll create more income than you have expense and you create the surplus and with that surplus I want you to then make this decision and if you'll make this decision you can become a millionaire you can build a fortune you can change your family's fortunes for generations to come so here is the question and it's a little technical it doesn't sound maybe as great as you'd like it to be but it's the truth when it comes to making an investment decision you have to ask yourself this question what do I want most appreciation or cash flow appreciation or cash flow the problem is most people think well they just heard me but they didn't listen to what i just said because okay these are not radically new concepts appreciation and cash flow that's what all investment is that's why you would invest but that's not what i said what i said is you have to decide what you want most appreciation or cash flow here's what i have witnessed In 30 years of building my own fortune and in coaching and helping other people with theirs. The vast majority of people shoot for both things at the same time, unintentionally, and miss both targets. Now we're going to get into this more, into the nitty gritty of this. But the bottom line is, I will see people, I ask them, what do you want with your real estate investments? Do you want appreciation or cash flow? And what do they tell me? I want both. Well, of course we want both. I want to be able to eat ice cream and lose weight. Okay, I want to be able to not work out and get fitter. I want both. The truth of the matter is that when you try to have both of those things happen, usually neither one does. Oftentimes, when you focus on one, you can get the other. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let me kind of give you an overview of my own investment portfolio. So this will give you just a frame of reference. About 65% of my net worth is tied up in real estate. And that's because that's what I know as well as as we'll get into some stats here there's an awful lot of people have made their money in real estate and continue to do so and will do so for the years to come food, shelter, clothing are the three big needs and the real estate business is all about the shelter business and that's never going out of style human beings are always going to need somewhere to live and I'll share with you a few principles on that here today so when it gets to real estate you have to ask yourself appreciation or cash flow I have 65% of my investment portfolio in real estate next i'd have 20 percent of my portfolio in stocks bonds and cash and again you have to ask yourself appreciation or cash flow and what does that mean well do i want to invest in stocks that go up or do i want stocks that are going to give me dividends or financial instruments that are going to give me dividends again that's the dynamic you try to do both you usually end up in trouble and then last would be other there's a number of Categories that can be in that other category. We'll talk a little bit about them, maybe their businesses, small businesses, people you know, private investments, things like that. We'll get into a few of those things today. So let me talk about real estate for a second. It's obviously what I know. I have a company that trains realtors and lenders and now 43 other businesses. But my background is real estate. And for the past 30 years, I've been a real estate investor. And that has made a big difference for me, for sure. Will Rogers, the famous satirist, said, Don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. That's so good I'm going to say it twice. Don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Brilliant principle. Franklin D. Roosevelt, President of the United States, said, Real estate cannot be lost or stolen, nor can it be carried away. Purchased with common sense, paid for in full, and managed with reasonable care, it is about the safest investment in the world. Okay, so Franklin knew what he was talking about. He's, he was president back in 1940 when the median home price in the United States was $30,600. Today, the median home price listed $238,990. The median rent today in the United States, $1,558. So guess what? Real estate has continued to go up in value and the cost to live there has gone up in value, too. So you're going to pay for real estate, food, shelter, clothing. You're going to need somewhere to live shelter-wise. Oh, by the way, we're going to have a housing shortage in the United States for a long time to come. We need 16 million new homes, condos, apartments built in the next 10 years just to keep up with the current population growth. And currently, the construction curve is behind that in the United States, which obviously basic laws of economics you constrict the supply and demand stays constant values continued to grow so let me give you an example of this magic of appreciation so imagine you purchased a home for $235,000 and it appreciates at 3% a year after 30 years that home will be worth $485,000 or 250 grand exactly more than you paid for it what if you got four percent appreciation watch the difference now the two hundred and thirty five thousand dollar house becomes worth six hundred and forty nine thousand dollars okay over four hundred thousand dollars more than what you first invested oh by the way four percent sound a little exotic since 1975 the annual appreciation rate for real estate in the United States is 4.67% okay Slightly higher by the way for our friends in Canada right now. So the fact of the matter is, I'm sharing with you these magic numbers of appreciation. Again, Will Rogers, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Well, thirty years, thirty years seems a long time. It's a long time to a millennial. It's a long time to my fourteen year old twins. But for those of us who are a little longer in the tooth, thirty years has seemed to gone by very quick. I've been in real estate and I've been in America for thirty years. And as I sit here today, as well as I've done in real estate, I have one regret. I wish I'd have bought more. But I ain't done yet. They're not putting me out to the pastures yet. I'm still buying real estate today. Andrew Carnegie was at one stage the wealthiest man in all America. He said, 90% of all meaners become so through owning real estate. More money has been made in real estate than in all industrial investments combined. The wise young man or wage earner of today invests his money in real estate. Well, that quote is almost 100 years old, I would say. It's still appropriate today, and it'll still be appropriate 100 years from now. Another famous man, Mark Twain, said, buy land. They're not making it anymore. So, true enough. And he used to go to Hawaii all the time, right to Volcanoes National Park, which is the one place in the world they actually are making more land. So even then, Mark was an optimist about real estate. It just pays off. Just so you know, and again, if you're a younger person listening to this or you've had a correction in life or a major adjustment in life and you're currently renting, I challenge you to try to become a homeowner. Every three years, the Federal Reserve conducts a survey of consumer finances in which they collect data across all economic and social groups. And they just brought out a survey that showed that the average homeowner's net worth is 36 times greater than that of a renter. And that survey came out in 2014. Lawrence Yoon is the president of the National Association of Realtors and he's projecting through the 2017 year that that gap will have gone from 36 times to 45 times. So that gap is widening and it's accelerating at a faster pace. So if you want to get ahead in life, buy a home. Buy a home. It's always a great thing because there's four powerful things that investing in real estate can do to make you a millionaire. Appreciation, obviously. You have the ability to pay down the loan. In the U.S. and in other countries, there's tax benefits for owner real estate. And if you hold it long enough and it appreciates well enough, then you'll also get some cash flow benefits. So appreciation, paying down the loan, tax benefits, and then uh, cash flow. So think about it. You have an asset that you can live in that goes up in value. The mortgage can go down. And then maybe you'll buy another house and keep the one you started in, keep that as a rental, keep paying it down, and then one day it's paid off. And now the rent becomes income. That's the way to do it. That's been going on for a long, long time. So appreciation in real estate. Let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about cash flow in real estate. So here's a couple of principles for you. And again, I know a lot of you're driving around. So listen to this several times. Don't be taking notes while you're driving, please. I want you to stay nice and safe. Listen to it a couple more times or mark the spot where I'm talking about this. So here's the principles for appreciation. First, what has appreciated in the past? Now, this is about 95% ironclad. Sometimes there are circumstances that lead to unusual appreciation. So, for example, they uh, start converting the oil sands in North Dakota, and they have never had that technology before, and they're able to process oil in a different way than they ever did, and all of a sudden, valuation in that area just explodes. Okay? That's where the 5% comes in. That's a little bit of the gold rush mentality, You might be able to be part of that one day or not. I just wouldn't bank my family's fortune and my future on being able to find that gold rush principle. So when I'm looking for what's going to appreciate in the future, I look to what's appreciated in the past. And you go, my gosh, but it's expensive to get in. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Markets like San Francisco or New York and London and Toronto, Washington, D.C., these cities that were very expensive in the past uh, that have appreciated they're going to appreciate in the future okay the other dynamic for an appreciation rule you have to consider your age if you're let's say you're 85 i might not make a ton of investments for appreciation okay because appreciation takes time and you have to be able to weather times when it goes up and it goes down because nothing goes up on a straight line it goes up and down and up and down but overall it goes up obviously we know this but i'm going to say it anyway. location is key You know, They always give you the three keys to real estate, location, location, location. The reason that's true is because the key locations are the sought-after locations are what have appreciated in the past. And so location is key. And then your mindset must be that 10 years is a minimum hold. If you're not willing to hold a piece of real estate for 10 years, then I would say you don't have the mentality of a real estate investor. You might have the mindset of a real estate flipper, You might have the mindset of a real estate gambler. You're going to try to play the game. And people who try to play the game lose the game. Real estate is not a liquid asset. You can't get in and get out of it effortlessly. There's lots of fees and expenses involved. It usually takes time to move it. So you have to understand, your mindset has to be, I'm going to buy this and hold it. Warren Buffett's made a lot of his money in a lot of other things. By the way, he believes in real estate too. He owns one of the largest real estate companies in the world today. But he has a principle that says, only buy something you'd be perfectly happy to hold if the market shut down for 10 years. Now, he's talking about stocks predominantly there, but that's a great way. Buy something that you'd be perfectly happy to hold if the market shut down for 10 years. So, a couple of basic underlying fundamentals for appreciation. Supply and demand, obviously very important. Real estate is very much connected to employment. And it's not just the volume of employment the employment rate, but it's also the quality of the job. So, for example, if you have, you know, low levels of unemployment, but also not a lot of growth in income for people's employment, you'll find that appreciation rates will slow down. Basically, housing is a big deal to people, and they will always make sacrifices for it. But if somebody's income hasn't gone up in a long time, that means they can't afford more for a house or for their housing or for their rental situation. And so the quality of employment is very, very important. And then what are the economic threats? What are the economic threats? I'll talk a little bit about it. I've owned I've owned everything you can imagine when it comes to real estate. So I started out with single family properties that I bought and fixed up and sold. I have bought duplexes, four plexes. I've bought apartment buildings. I've owned a hotel. I have purchased storage units i was in storage i had thousands of storage units that's another real estate investment so again i've been on a lot of different sides of the real estate game if you will and you know you have to take in these different dynamics so for example in the storage unit business the storage units are typically used when people have a change in life when they're moving when they're transitioning either transitioning up out or down so for example, storage units do well near military bases and near college campuses and things like that. Oh, by the way, if you happen to have a very large storage unit complex next to a military base and that military base gets closed down, that's an economic threat to that investment. Okay? So you can't see everything about the future, but you take into account some of the things that have happened. And again, people tend to be pretty conservative when it comes to real estate. That's why on the appreciation game, people will go to these desirable locations, and that's where they'll continue to invest. Now, the downsides to investing in real estate for appreciation, usually expensive to get in, usually a long-term hold, usually takes a long time to get to cash flow. And so you have to be prepared for that. But ultimately, those things can be very, very valuable decisions. The dynamic of cash flow is a totally different business and a totally different application of buying real estate so i would say to this i mean obviously you have a lot of zip on your fastball you got a lot of energy and you got a lot of years in front of you i mean buying real estate for the purpose of appreciation is a very smart move and holding on and it's a grind and it's not sexy and it doesn't always advance the way you'd like and sometimes you got to fix the plumbing and fix the electrical and you replace the roof and there's things to do there's costs involved so it's not this runaway train win it's a long-term battle. But if you do it right, by golly, you can end yourself up in good sorts. You know, the days are long, the years are short. That's true in two things in my life, raising kids and holding real estate. That's what I'd say to you. Now, cash flow is a different dynamic, okay? And cash flow real estate is a business. So you're typically now, you're talking about owning real property to rent it out to others. You have to do it in such a way that What you're getting from rent is going to more than compensate for the expenses of uh, maintaining and managing and any uh, debt service you have on the property. Now, typically, when you do cash flow, you're investing in markets where it's less expensive to get in, where there's not as high a demand, the appreciation rates might not be as high. This principle doesn't... I'm not talking to a REIT that has... Three billion dollars to invest and can buy downtown la jolla downtown san francisco new york or wherever the heck else they want and they could plonk down a giant amount of money and then get a three to five percent return on their cash on cash and no that's not who's listening to this podcast so i'm talking to the uh, typical person here today who's uh grinding it out wants to change their life and uh has a business or a job and they want to advance themselves so Cash flow, you can definitely do cash flow, but cash flow is typically in, I would say, a less expensive regions or cities or towns where it's easier to get into. I can name some cities and I'm not going to because I don't want you to get into particular real estate buying advice from me today, but there's a number of cities like say Midwest or down South in the United States where there's high demand for rents, but the property values haven't really appreciated much. Are there lower appreciation rates, therefore 10 or sometimes 20% down, and you're cash flowing? I can tell you in San Diego, you buy apartments with 20% down, unless they're out in the sticks, you really are not going to cash flow with 20% down. You might not cash flow with 40% down in some of the higher price locations. So that's the dynamic. So the location is usually a little different. And again, very good dynamic. And the purpose is that you want to supplement your income or if your goal is to create your income from cash flow, it's a different business. And there's a neat book I recommend to you. It's by a fellow by the name of Frank Gallinelli. The book is called What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow. What Every Real Estate Investor Needs to Know About Cash Flow. He's got some very good stuff in there. So let me just give you a few rules for cash flow for real estate. First of all, management is key. When you own real estate with the purpose of cash flow you own another business it is a business to run and how it's managed and the way it's managed that is what's going to define how good it is there are dynamics in place that you just have to be on top of for example you have got to manage the expenses and you got to keep it lean you can't maintain properties i'm a real stickler for keeping my properties in great great shape and i've always done this and I'll be honest with you, over the years, I've probably over-improved properties, made them nicer and cleaner than they probably should have been. I probably have left money on the table because I wanted the properties nicer. I, you know, I'm a painter's son. I like them all looking great and in great shape. Now, I'm not encouraging people to be slumlords. I'm just going to say to you, you have to manage the expenses. You have to be very disciplined. When you make your improvements, you do them over a long period of time. The business has to be run lean. There's margins that have to be maintained. Benjamin Franklin was America's first millionaire, and he would say, beware of little expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. And that's true. So one of the things we do with investment real estate is what's called gross rent multipliers. And gross rent multipliers are what have been historically used to calculate the value of a property based on how much income it brings in. So you might have this particular part of town has an eight times gross rent multiplier. So you bring in all the gross rents, multiply out by eight, and that's about the value of the building. So that's good for not only buying and selling, it gives you a great understanding of what you have. And so that's why when you raise the rents just a touch and you get good tenants and you take good care of them, you invest wisely in your rental properties, so you have good margins, then you have that gross rent multiplier is ultimately what dictates the value. That's why investment real estate is not nearly the emotional purchase that a home is a single family residence is a home people fall in love with it they buy emotionally and justify logically investment in real estate you're dealing with more mathematical formulas you got to like the buildings you got to think "Oh, i like this you know this is good if i had a friend who came into town i'd be good with them living here type thing but ultimately gross rent multipliers are what have been used historically now the reason i say historically is that real estate's going through changes just like the rest of the world is going through changes so things like Airbnb and Pillow have changed the game. They really have. So what does that mean? In fact, my own brother, Kevin, just purchased a property a few years ago, and he presented it to me. Now, I'm, I'm kind of his advisor when it comes to real estate, and uh, he's seen me do very well over the years, and he lays out a property he wants to purchase near the beach, and it was very expensive for a very small property, and there was a huge amount of fix-up costs involved. And I did the math, and I worked at it every which way but loose, and it was like, man, this thing's a money pit. And I didn't tell him not to buy it, but I said, just so you know, on classic real estate, this wouldn't hold up. Well, he said, I'm going to use an Airbnb-type service, and I'm going to rent it out by the day, the week, and so on and so forth, because it's a vacation area. And lo and behold, the gross rent multipliers for an Airbnb property, it is off the charts. And so this is a property that 100% would be a big losing proposition. That is 100% a big winning proposition. Now, little asterisks, what's the risk there? Well, let's say that city says you can't do Airbnb anymore. You can't do vacation rentals anymore unless it's at a month at a time where else you're in trouble. Now, again, that's a small risk. That isn't happening everywhere, but there's things like that taking place. So just be careful. I like to not be on the bleeding edge of investments. I like to be on the leading edge. I like to see how cities are responding to this stuff. You know, there are cities now, again, I brought up San Francisco. It's a very unique market. But there are people right now that are using Airbnb to rent out a room in their house so they can afford to keep their house. And that is becoming more and more of a common dynamic in the bigger cities we're living in. So some of the traditional formulas for calculating values of real estate are being changed and it's legit and it's legit and the demand and the supply is there the fundamentals are there i would just say be cautious because if you buy a piece of real estate based on full maximum occupancy of an airbnb yada 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 and if there was some possible change to the the laws in that area would you be able to keep the property would it go from being a big winner to a giant loser you just have to be aware that doesn't mean don't do it the key for me is I in my life, I've learned to take calculated risks. Sit down, count the cost. When it comes to investment real estate, I try not to make emotional decisions ever. When it comes to your home, it isn't an emotional decision, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Just don't be emotionalistic about it, okay? Again, a couple of principles here. You know, management is the key. It's another business to run. Keep the expenses low. Learn about gross rent multipliers and so on and so forth. And just another thing there is just understand real estate it's you decide appreciation or cash flow you see if you buy for appreciation it goes up in value you keep paying down and then you get yourself into a position where you've got a very low loan to value ratio so you have a lot of equity in the property there's a good chance there over time you'll be able to make some cash flow with that property use the additional cash flow to buy down the property the best type of real estate in the world listen is free and clear of any debt Free and clear of any debt. If you don't own any money on the property, no bank can come and foreclose it, okay? You just got to pay your city taxes and other utilities, and you're good to go. And so uh, as long as you do that, that's the best kind of real estate. And that's the kind of real estate I like. And it's taken me a lot of years to get to the place of owning real estate. You You have to manage, based on your age, your comfort level with risk, how much debt you're willing to tolerate, you know i hear people say you got to buy a house 100 percent down uh okay there are certain cities in america that works and there's a whole bunch of cities in america that's absolutely not happening if you have to wait to have a hundred percent down payment and you live in san diego unless you hit the lotto or unless something really dramatic happens you'll never own a home and you'll never get that 30 years of appreciation you never get that 30 years of paying down a loan So there are acceptable levels of debt when it comes to real estate. Now, what I'm all about is not using real estate as an ATM machine. So let's say I have a property and I have a 50% loan to value based on its current valuation and how much I owe. I don't like taking the money out of that property and putting it in the next one. What I like doing is grinding, scrapping, saving, saving the down payment for the next property. And if you do that, that is a winning formula. It's harder, takes longer, You're going to miss out on deals that way. It's not as sexy. And there's people who've played the pull the money out of the property game and won. Uh, There's a lot more say they've won than they have. But I would say that's a better way to go. At the height of the real estate boom in the middle to late 2000s, there were 28 television programs to buy, fix, and flip real estate. At one stage, I went down to just one, and now they're back on TV again. You see it a lot, and it's kind of exciting. I love buying real estate and fixing it up. I love it. I would say, as a hobby, as a pastime, as a person, it just—my uh, personality comes to life when I have a piece of real estate that I buy and I fix it up and make it better and more valuable. I just love it. But I will tell you this: there's a heck of a difference between buying, fixing, and holding, and buying, fixing, and flipping. And I've been on both sides of this. And so in my early career, when the market was good, I did a lot of buying and fixing and flipping to get myself a nest egg together. But then I started buying and fixing and holding. And that's the program I have today. I do not buy and fix and flip real estate. So I tend to have bigger projects today. Most of my real estate holdings today are in commercial real estate. A lot of benefits to that. That's the true mailbox money. Commercial real estate is typically leased out on what's called a triple net lease, which means that the tenant pays for the taxes, the utilities, and the property management. So basically, there's very little to do. There's some structural things you do, but basically you get a check every month when you own commercial real estate. The downside to commercial real estate, so I have a building that's 30,000 square feet and it's leased to a company. Well, if that company moves out, that building's going to sit vacant and bring in zero income until such time as I rent it out. So you have to be strong enough to hold that. Strip malls, you might have 10 tenants and your main tenant pulls out and so you've got to weather that storm. So there's pluses and minuses to it all. I'm just going to say to you, buy, fix, hold. That is the way to win in real estate. But the first thing you have to decide is do I want appreciation or do I want cash flow? And then focus your attention on the one you've chosen. And if you do it right, eventually you'll get both of them. Now, how does that apply to the stock market? Now, I'm not a stock expert. I just play one in a podcast studio. But I've done pretty well there, and I've studied and read a lot on the subject. So a couple of little tips I would give you on the stock side of things. First, don't try to be the smartest person in the room, okay? I see this all the time. It's kind of like fantasy football, You know, people play fantasy football and they pick their players. And when they have a good week, they feel like they're the smartest person that they figured it all out. And there's no doubt they might have put a bit of thought into it and they they made some good decisions and they got lucky. There's a great quote that says, if you're the smartest person in the room, they're in the wrong room. I will say that. Henry Ford, one of the most successful men that ever lived, was once on trial. It was an industrial trial. And the prosecutor said, Henry Ford, you might be the, the dumbest man in America. And Henry was often referred to as a real simple kind of character. And he said, you know, you might be right, but I have surrounded myself with some of the smartest people of all time. And that's why we still know Henry Ford's name and can't tell you who the prosecutor was 60 years later. So the principle here is invest, don't trade. Okay? Now, I have people probably listening to this podcast. And please, if you're a day trader or whatever else, don't take it as judgment or whatever else. I'm just going to say this. When people have a trader mindset when it comes to stocks, The vast majority of them lose. The vast majority of them lose. And it's this gunslinger type mentality. And it's really, to be honest with you, it's no different than gambling. I think there's more fun to go and watch a horse run around a track and put your money on it than there is for you to try to figure out what is going on on the trade standpoint. Now, I have met traders who do very well. But they typically are traders, like in the Chicago Board of Trade, where they're commodity brokers. And they've made a lot of money trading with other people's money and they make money if the it goes up and they sometimes make money if it goes down and so on and so forth but those are the people i've seen make money with trading when it comes to stocks invest you know boring old dollar cost averaging <laughs> okay every insurance seminar that'll put you to sleep and have you reading you know the back of your eyelids dollar cost averaging means you buy on the up you buy on the down you chip away chip away chip away Things like uh, retirement assets, like uh, 401ks and IRAs and things like that, that are retirement instruments. And you just chip away and chip away and chip away. At Buffini Company, we have a very generous profit-sharing program for our staff. And we encourage that our staff, they're able to put in, I think, up to 12% of their income into their retirement instrument, a 401k. And Buffini Company matches them. They put in a dollar, we'll put in a dollar type thing. And I have people working for me that are millionaires. I have people who are on their way to be millionaires. I'm a 21-year-old business. I've people been with me a long time. And they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars accumulated. And they were making a a decent salary. They've saved their money so they could live on what they were making. And they've allowed this retirement piece to come along. And now here they go. And it's grown. And it's grown. It's grown tax-deferred and the earnings are growing tax deferred and they're moving and moving and moving and by golly they're winning and yet you know it's kind of the hare and the tortoise and here comes the tortoise winning the race and the tortoise always wins Warren Buffett, again I'm going to quote him a lot he's considered the greatest investor in the world here's the thing when people at the top of the ladder tell you how they got there listen that's what I do I'm not the smartest guy in the room I am Irish God created alcohol to stop us taking over the world that's the truth There is no Irish space program. We have a good sense of humor. We like to laugh. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I wasn't the smartest guy in my class. But I'll tell you this. I've studied a lot of smart people and I've followed in their footsteps. Buffett says this. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. I'm going to give you that one again. The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. You become impatient with your investments and you are in the process of transferring your money to somebody else. Buffett doesn't analyze the success of an investment until five years has gone by. Powerful stuff. The landscape is changing a little bit with stocks, by the way. Uh, Tony Robbins recently wrote a book on money, some really good stuff in there. And Boy, he was getting barbecued online by people talking about because he brought up the fact of like mutual funds. And the future demise of mutual funds. And he was just getting barbecued for this. Now, here's the thing. A lot of what he was saying was true. Now, the context that he was getting hit for was, you know, how long is that going to take? And all these nuances that we don't have a lot of nuance in our discussions anymore. But the fact of the matter is the market has changed. You know, the days of work hard, save your money, buy a mutual fund and hold on. I've got to be honest with you, it's changing. It's changing. and And there's financial people who've been around for a long long time on radio and books and whatever else who you know that's been their advice for 25 years it was good advice it was very good advice for a long time the market is changing the market is changing and so a good solid investment vehicles that have lower costs that can either pay you a dividend that's your cash flow or you're investing for appreciation that's a growth stock then that's what you do and that's what I've done so for example I'm a fan don't take this I don't give out advice financially I'm not a financial planner I'm telling you what I do but I like ETFs which are exchange traded funds and these are funds that hold assets like stocks and commodities or bonds and it trades close to its net asset value over the course of a trading day and so I'll have investments in ETFs that are dividend funds and I'll have uh, like broad market funds that are growth funds and that's what I do again what i recommend you do is get some help i have help i have been working with a fellow by the name of ben stewart who's up in northern california and he has his own business called stewart wealth management and he's a great guy that i've referred business to for years i'm just letting you know his name because this is the guy that i use okay it's not a sponsor plug or any of those things you normally hear in a podcast you know i'm just coming to you straight from the shoulder. I study, I read, I do the analysis, and Ben Stewart's better at it than I am because he's doing it every day. And so I get the help of somebody like him because he's doing it every day, because guess what? I don't want to do it every day. I want to check in once in a while. I want to see how we're doing. We have a plan in place. Ben and I reassess the plan every year. We put a a long-term strategy in place. We'll reevaluate the entire strategy every three years, just like I'm telling you, and it's done real well. And Ben is on top of it. He has his finger on the pulse. He's able to give me good advice. And he's there to serve me instead of serving himself. And because of that, I've referred him a lot of customers. So if you're listening to this and you're a financial planner, i got to share with you. Ben Stewart, I've sent him hundreds of clients over the years. And here's why. Because Ben has made it very clear my interests always come before his. He doesn't sell me the product that has the best commission for him, uh, the best rate for him. He always tells me everything up front, why he's doing what he's doing and we agree on it mutually we partner up on this and then when he has his recommendations he calls me and lets me know and that's how we've done business for over a decade and a half and a long time to come lord willing so i would just say to you again make sure that you get some help so the whole dynamic there don't be the smartest person in the room invest don't trade i like things like etfs little old dollar cost averaging but again the principle gets into when you buy stocks are you doing it for appreciation which means i want these things to grow if you're going to buy stocks for growth you know it's just a little more of a ride so you got to be prepared for them to go up and down and then the second dynamic is you want to do it long term if you want cash flow then you're looking for things that are going to give you more of a dividend okay and make your decisions accordingly all right here's an example of the other category and this is where we talk about 15 percent the last 15 percent so if you own a business the first thing i'm going to say to you is is invest in your business okay Your business is something that you know, you trust the management, you are probably in an industry you have a lot of knowledge about, so keep growing your own business. So that's a big deal. So let me give you an example about investing in your own business. On several occasions, early on in the Buffini Company story, I had either investors or I have also had partners, and sometimes the situation came up where decisions had to be made. And in every case in those situations, I'll tell you quite frankly, I had to buy out in my own business on two occasions. I paid a lot more to rebuy back certain amount of stock of my own business than it was worth every time. But I was betting on myself. And I was betting on uh, what I knew and what I was willing to do. And so that's an example of investing in your business. Investing in your business is also investing in yourself. Again, Ben Franklin, America's First Millionaire, said, If a person will take their purse and invest it in their head, it's the investment that pays the greatest dividend and no one can ever take it from you. Are you investing in yourself? If you want to make more money, if you want your business to grow, the first investment to make is into yourself, your own knowledge, your own skill set development, time management, whatever. Whatever you can do to self-develop. And so investing in your business, invest in yourself, and then I would also say invest in people. Invest in people. If you're building a business, you want to invest in people so you can raise up leaders and have them ultimately become mentors themselves that raise up other leaders. And I'm very, very proud of the fact that Buffini Company has created a culture where an awful lot of our leadership inside our company has been homegrown. Not all of it, but a lot of it has. But invest in people. And when it comes to making deals, invest in people and then the deal. So you invest in people first and then the deal. Warren Buffett again says you can't do a good deal with a bad person. So there's times that somebody has come to me with a phenomenal looking investment and it just didn't sit with me because I couldn't get past the messenger, if you know what I mean. And in almost every case, those things don't work out, you know. So you invest in the people first and then the deal. Very, very important. My wife, Beverly, has never looked at a profit and loss statement. She's never looked at a balance sheet she doesn't know anything about gross rent multipliers appreciation rates deck deferred exchanges or any of the things that our husband has mastered but there's been times when we've looked at a business investment and she'll sit there and she goes it just doesn't feel right and I go what it just doesn't feel right and in my early days of our marriage I didn't always listen to that but I came to really respect that over time that uh, when my wife would have these intuition or gut feelings or just it didn't feel right. She couldn't even give me a logical reason why. That that is as important as the logical reasons. Because you're only as good as the people you do business with. And so that's a big deal. So I would say invest in your own business, invest in yourself, and then invest in people first and then the deal. What I will say to you is I love small business, I love small business owners. We have thousands and thousands of small business owners we coach we have hundreds of thousands of small business owners we train and i love the dynamic of small business owners and that's why on occasion i'll invest in a small business that isn't mine i'm a big believer in entrepreneurship i'm a big believer in entrepreneurs i love people who are willing to go for it and take a chance I will be releasing a book here later this year called The Emigrant Edge. And one of the dynamics that it's shown, for example, in the USA, is that immigrants represent only 13% of American population, but represent 25% of all small business owners. And there's a lot to be said for people who've made the decisions and left where they came from. And uh, one of the ways they want to do it is to really get after and grow a small business. So I love owning a small business and I love people to have... Even people who have a job to have a little small business on the side. Great quote says, entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life like most people won't so that you can spend the rest of your life like most people can't. Powerful stuff. So I've covered an awful lot with you here today. We started out with the culture's view of financial success, and it's buy more and then work harder. And I think we've gotten past that. Yeah, we want to work hard but we want to keep our expenses down, create that surplus. And then we want to turn that surplus into a fortune. We don't want to be the folks that are the statistics here that are one in three that has no money for retirement or has less than a grand in savings. We just don't want to be in that spot. We want to make that big decision that when we create this surplus, we want to invest for either appreciation or cash flow. Real estate is a fantastic place to start. And it's something that very much most people can get to know real estate. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated. And yet it's really helped so many people do so well. And so real estate appreciation, real estate cash flow, and I gave you some good tools there. Then on the stock side, appreciation, which is stocks going up in value or cash flow, the dividends. Again, make that decision. And then lastly, you know, investing in yourself and investing in a business some of those principles there i hope this stuff has helped you today i I know this is not the exhaustive work on the subject but i hope it's given you some food for thought i hope you understand that if a fellow like me the son of a house painter who came to america with 92 bucks in his wallet can end up here well what can you do and how much further can you go than where i'm at and it is a good life and i found that it's a really good life when you get to do the things you want to do with the people you want to do it with. I've told this story before, but I will share with you my greatest financial success story. And I talked to my mother and father in Ireland this morning, 86 years of age. I laughed with them on the phone for an hour. I would say this about Irish people. We have the best time. Uh, We call it crack. Crack is not a drug, although it could be. Crack is a Gaelic word, and it means the fun they get together and they laugh and i got on the phone this morning with my parents and i literally we laugh for an hour you know an immigrant tradition is about sending remittances back home to your family you come to america you do well whatever you're working at you're probably doing better than the folks back home you send them a few books and i've been my parents retirement for the past 23 years and i had a conversation with them this morning and they were just talking about the life of Riley and what they're doing. In the Irish tradition, they're actually making fun right now of what they're doing with the money that I've been giving them for years. (laughs) We have so much, we're doing this and we're doing that. And they're kind of rubbing it in my nose a little bit. And it's just great. It's great fun that only the Irish can give grief to the person that's actually giving them the cash. But that's the way it works. But, you know, what a joy I've had for the past 20 years that my dad, the retired house painter, hasn't had to get up ladders and paint and do the work that uh, otherwise he would have been forced to do because i was willing to make a few decisions that changed my life my kids i can tell you today the joy in my life i'm going to be doing a podcast in a few weeks called what matters most and i'll tell you, you know for me the great joy i have in my life is not owning jet airplanes and all the real estate holdings and all that stuff the greatest joy i have in my life is that all six of my kids are pursuing their dream Some of their dreams are more expensive than others. Some of them require more resources than others. I have one girl who's the two-time U.S. dressage equestrian champion. And her dream requires horses and barns and all of that stuff. Some of the other kids, not so much. But for my wife and I, we have the great joy that the fortune we built has been allowing our kids who are hardworking, they have the immigrant edge mindset themselves, the chance to pursue their passion and what their dreams are. And that's my hope and prayer for all of you, that you would be in a position not to be rich and, you know, showing off what you have and what you don't have or whatever else, but to be a person that can pursue your purpose in life and that you can create an opportunity for those you love to pursue their purpose in life. Sound a little altruistic? Maybe for some, but I got to tell you, it's the life I live every single day. Like I said, I'm no rocket scientist. But for the past 30 years, I've had a chance to live just a really, really good life by following some of these principles, all of these principles i shared with you. And I made decisions along the way. And I made decisions about appreciation versus cash flow and followed the formula. Didn't get caught up in the latest stock of the day. I didn't get caught up in the dot-com boom. I didn't get caught up in the trading boom. I didn't get caught up in uh, buying and fixing and flipping at the height of the real estate market. I didn't get caught up in taking money out of real estate and buying the next one and buying the next one. I just didn't do those things. I stayed the course, steady yeti, And here we are today. Here's an example of here we are today. I invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into this podcast studio, a state-of-the-art facility, I'm able to bring this podcast to you today without sponsors, without pitching something and selling something to you every time. In fact, any time. And you know what? I have had as much fun doing this podcast as anything I've done in the last 30 years. I will tell you, I'm able to share whatever I have with you today and whatever guests and people I'm going to interview here in the months and years to come. I'm able to do all this for you and have a staff of people here today in this studio and producing these shows because I took care of these things financially. And if you're blessed by this podcast or any of these messages, you're being blessed not by the person, but by a process of following these very disciplines I just shared with you. And that is the power of the economics. That's the power of building a fortune. Because along with it comes freedom and along with it, it empowers you to follow your purpose and your passion without any strings attached. I don't need to receive a check from anybody. I don't need anybody to buy anything. I want to bless as many people as I can. So with that today, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. I just read this morning all the updated reviews from everybody, and there's a bunch of folks here. I'll be actually reading out some of your quotes here in uh, podcasts to come. So leave me a review on iTunes. It really helps, and i really appreciate all the feedback and we'll read you out, maybe make you a star. How's that? We're also on the Android, so don't forget to download your favorite podcast app from Google Play, and you can tune in there for free. And also, remember, our goal is to positively influence as many people as we can, so be sure to share the show with others. If you know someone who might not be a millionaire, why don't you share this podcast with them? If you know someone who's struggling a bit financially, why don't you share this particular podcast with them? If you know somebody who would like to grow and stop making big, big, bad mistakes with their finances, then why don't you share this podcast with them. So I hope you'll do that. And as I finish here today, I want to leave you with a little Irish blessing that my grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, Jean Kuhlman, may God hold you all in the hall of his hand.